If you've got your Bibles, please turn to Nehemiah chapter 10. We're continuing our series in the book of, of Nehemiah. And uh, for those who are here for the first time, can I give you a big welcome? And also bring you up to speed. We've been looking at the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is a book about the rebuilding of God's people. It starts with the rebuilding of the walls. And it goes through in terms of how God, through the leadership of a man called Nehemiah, it seems to be restoring his people back to himself and back to what it is to live as his people. Now we're on Nehemiah chapter 10. Now we're going to read this together. However, what I am going to do is I'm just going to highlight verses 1 through to 27. Right, now because they're very long names and they're names that are, that are difficult to say. Now before anyone says, I've bottled it, I have done 14 years in this church and every time there are names, every time there are names, we read them. But I've made the decision not to today for the sake of of time and for the sake of the fact I need to be honest with you I'm struggling as I get older to see my Bible so therefore <laughs> when, I'm, when I'm dealing with names when I'm dealing with names that I'm struggling to, to even see never mind say I think it would probably for the edification of everybody for us to recognize there are 84 names Nehemiah leaders and the Levites of which there are 17 of the leaders who signed the seal of covenant in light of the conviction of sin of how they're going to leave. Okay, so I'm going to read from verse 28, if that's okay, Banda, for the screen. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the people of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods of any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of God, our God, according to our fathers' houses, at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God. As it is written in the law, we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruits of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of God to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priests, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chamber, chambers of the storehouse. 
For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, by your spirit, wake us up this morning. By your spirit full of flesh, we pray. We ask, Lord, that every single person in this room would recognize that we sit under the authority of your word. And that by your spirit, your presence is among us. And we ask, that your spirit will make much of your word and stir our affections for your son, Jesus. And we pray these things in his precious name. Amen. For those of you who are here at the beginning, do you remember right at the beginning of this story, Nehemiah is working in, in the palace in the Persian kingdom. He's working there and then he's visited by his brother and a few others and he is intrigued to know what God is doing in and through his people. All those people who had already returned back. And what was the news? They're in a terrible state. The walls are broken down. The people are covered in shame. It is horrendous. And what does Nehemiah do? Does he put into action straight away what he's going to know? What does he do? He gets on his knees and he prays to God. And part of his prayer, he says this. It's not on the screen, so you'll hear me. We have acted very corruptly against you. And we have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there, I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. That was the prayer. Straight at the outset, he wasn't thinking strategy for wars. He wasn't thinking strategy for, for engaging with the issues of the people at the time. What was he thinking? We have sinned against you, but you made a promise that if we return to you and obey, you will, you will take all, that you have, all of those you have scattered and bring them back to be in the midst of where you dwell. See, what we're seeing over these chapters 8, 9, and 10, what we're seeing is that happening. What we're seeing is God's people being convicted by his word and turning back. See, we've seen the building of the wall. We've seen the building of the people in terms of dealing with the issues of, of infighting and issues of, 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 of people being um, taken advantage of because of their poverty. And now we're seeing the rereading of the word and it is doing something to God's people. See, remember last week they took a retrospective view, a look at their history. And it brought them to real conviction, to the conclusion that they realized that their God was ever faithful and they was so, so wicked. See, their conviction led to a confession of sin, and that's what we read last week in chapter 9. But folks, confession of sin can be cathartic, can't it? It can be. It can make us feel better. Oh, 
I'm so glad I've got that off my chest. I'm so glad I've got that off, off, off my shoulders. And in fact, public displays of confession can, folks, seem meaningful and can seem sincere, but at times can mean and doesn't make a blind bit of difference. See, what we read here is in chapter 9 is that they cast off their sin and they recognize that the heart of their sin was to do with their lack of engagement in their relationship with God. Something needed to change. The reason why they were sinning was because they'd taken their eyes from the wonder who God was. And it wasn't a fact of, okay, we won't do that again. And it wasn't a fact of, I need to put these in place in terms of my own ability. No, they realized that the heart of the matter was the fact that they had not engaged with the relationship that God had began with them. And that's why verse 38 of chapter 9, they say, because of all this, because of this, we need to make a firm covenant in writing, a promise, and it needs to be sealed. And the names on the seals are the princes and the Levites and our, uh, and our priests. And folks, I want to clarify again, this is so important. They are not making a covenant in order for them to be right with God. No, in fact, because of who they were, because of his faithfulness, those of us who have faith in God are right with him. No, his covenant was so that they, they covenanted the promise to say that they would keep their end of the bargain. That they would respond rightly to God. And the way that they did that was to live according to the good ways and the good word that he had given them. Live by my word. Live by my commandments. And you will enjoy the delight and the joy of knowing what it is to be in my presence. See, remember those of us who were here last week, the crux of the issue was this, that they refused to obey God's law. That's what it was. They refused to obey and they failed to remember all that God had done for them. So therefore, because of this, their conviction led to confession. And now it leads to a covenant of change. A promise of change. So what we have in chapter 10 is a public covenant made by God's people. So my first point is this, who are signing the things? Who's signing the thing, the signatures? See, what we have, the, the ones that I bottled out of and didn't read, the leaders of God's people, you've got 84 names mentioned here. 17 of these names are Levites. These were the priests who had the responsibility to ensure the spiritual health of God's people. And also, right at the beginning, you have Nehemiah himself. And then, verses 28 and 29, have a look, the rest of the people. The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who had separated themselves for the public reading and confession. Everybody, those who were recognized, we are the people of God, we have sinned. They separated themselves from those that they even married who were from other nations, which God had forbidden. And they, those who separated themselves, as well as them, also their wives and sons and daughters, everyone, it says, verses 29, who had knowledge and understanding. This was truly a corporate promise. Truly a corporate covenant. But folks, notice, it is the leaders who take responsibility for the temperature and the culture of God's people at that time. Do you notice that? They take responsibility. They're the first to sign their names. And folks, I need to say this. It's the same today. Any good leader takes responsibility for the people that they lead. 
if you ever hear a leader say, well, it's the people I've been given. It's the team I've been given. It's the church that I've been given. No, a good leader takes responsibility. What is it about our leadership that means our people are like this? What is it about my leadership that our people are like this? And what we see here is that the leaders take responsibility, especially when there is sin, especially when God's people have taken their eyes off God. And today, folks, especially when there is sin, it's easy as a leader when things are going great to say, yes, it's because of my leadership. But it is a tough thing to say when things aren't, yes, it's because of our leadership. But they take responsibility that the fact that God's people had taken their eyes from the wonder of who God was. And what we read here is that the people stand with the leaders. And the people recognize their sin also. Again, that is also important for all of us to recognize. It is so easy to choose and to point out other people as a scapegoat for your sin. It happens every day of the week in every political realm. It's always the other person's fault on the other side of the room. Always. It's always that person's fault who's in the office. It's got nothing to do with the fact that I turn in late every day. See, what we see here is that people also recognize and own their own sin and they stand with their leaders. Yeah, the leaders are responsible, but it's not just a leadership issue. See, it was the reading of God's word in chapters 8 and 9 that cut the people to the heart. Now, folks, the role of spiritual leadership is to present the word of God and to lead in light of God's word. And as the word is proclaimed, the spirit takes the word and works in the hearts of the people of God. That's the responsibility of spiritual leadership. So when conviction happens, whether it is individually or it is corporately, it is the responsibility of those who preach and teach to lead God's people in and through the word to point people back to God in their confession and in their repentance. You see that? It's their responsibility. What we have here, the leaders taking responsibility to disciple the people to the means of grace that God had given them. One, to cast off their sin. Two, to, enjoy, to know forgiveness. And three, to enjoy his presence. We see firstly those who sign this covenant. Secondly, we see the covenant, the details of it, the covenant, sorry. See, they are covenanting, they're making a promise to walk according to God's law and to observe all the commandments and the statutes and the rules of God's law. Verse 29, you read it there. Now what's interesting is they use the language of them entering into a curse. We're going to enter into a curse and, a, and, and an oath. And what's happening here that these two expressions are conveying that these people intend to take this promise seriously. They intend to take it seriously. See, the case refers to a terrible penalty, a consequence for them failing to keep this oath, which, folks, they understand firsthand. They know from their history that as soon as God's people take their eyes from God, fail to live according to his law, the consequences are disastrous. They know, these people know firsthand. And on another level, it's a solemn promise that says we want to be held accountable. 
that we together with our leaders are going to walk in light of God's word and they're saying we want to be accountable in the way that we live before God and before each other. Now folks, when we make promises, when we, when we make promises to God and often when we're con- in, there's a conviction of sin, we, we'll, we'll say, Lord, I'm sorry and I promise that I'll do this. One of the wonderful things as being those who are part of a new covenant, those of the covenant of grace that comes with the Lord Jesus Christ, that the, any curse that we may receive for not following the ways of the Lord as those who are Christians has been removed. Amen? Amen. We don't follow God in fear. We don't follow his word in light of fear. See, Galatians 3 tells us this, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. But it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So if you don't do them, you're going to be cursed. That's what he's saying. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Those who are right before God, they live by faith in Christ. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by faith. So those who have faith in God, those who have faith in God through Jesus Christ, we live according to that faith, so therefore we will live according to his word. But Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everybody who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. See, these people say, we're going to make a promise and we're going to enter into a curse. If we don't keep God's law, this is what's going to happen to us. Now, what's interesting, when you read the Bible, God has already listed out, if you, if you reject my word, this will happen. And they've experienced that. It wasn't that they were making up their own curses. You know, if I don't obey this, I will do this to myself or something like that. No, they knew that. But what were we seeing here in Galatians? The righteous live by faith, not according to the law. But if you have faith in Christ, you will seek to live according to God's law. But if you fail in that area, do not worry. Christ has already taken the case for you. Amen? That's good news, folks. That's good news. However, we are also as Christians. Like I think what they were doing through making this public promise to lovingly hold each other accountable. To lovingly hold each other accountable. And in the New Testament, there are many verses to how we are to love and walk with one another and how we are to restore each other if some of us sin. Point them back to God. Point them back to God. But it's also right to recognize that to walk away from the means of grace that God has given us to remind us of who he is and what he's done for us in Christ, to walk away from those things will mean that we will have consequences in our lives that aren't great. That aren't great. And if you're a Christian, and most of us have experienced that, we know when we're living in darkness, when we say we're part of the light. We know when we're putting our face on, when actually the things, we've walked away from the things of God. We know that when we walk away from God's people, we know when we don't remember the cross, what it does to us. And the consequences may be small, but they may be also big. So as people here who understand, God's people, the seriousness and the consequences of not walking and living according to God's law, they make a solemn promise together to follow God's law. 
So what is the promise? What are the details of the promise, number three? So what you have here, as you read it through, you have six promises, six clauses. And those six promises are separated into two different groups. One of the groups is to do with the law, which is the word of God. And the other is to do with the temple, which is the presence of God. And then right at the end, verse 39, they sum it all up by saying, we will not neglect the household of God. Now, before we go there, I want to give a little word about Bible implication and Bible application. We have just read last week that God's people came to realize, they came to realize that God is gracious and they are wicked. Agreed? And if the Spirit of God was moving in anyone's hearts last week as it was preached, we came to the same conclusion. That God is so wonderful and glorious and in light of him, we are so wicked. We are so wicked. That is a conviction of sin. That is true for everybody in the midst of the fallen state that we find ourselves in. By our very nature, by our very nature in terms of being distorted by sin, we are wicked before a holy God. That's why grace is so wonderful, that he invites broken, busted people in to his wonderful presence because we're covered by the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the wonder of what it is. But if we were just to leave it there, God is glorious and we are so wicked, we sort of hang, don't we? We hang there. It's like, oh, yeah. Now, the implications of that being taught is that we go away knowing that God is glorious and we are busted up and broken and we don't deserve his, way, his, 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 his mercy and his love. We don't deserve to be in his presence. Now, the implications, the implications of knowing that we're wicked, that's true. But in Christ, we are in his presence. But we struggle with that issue. So that's an implication that affects us all. But in terms of how we are acting out our wickedness is different for each of us. Some of us have to confess certain sins that others aren't committing. But it doesn't really matter because it still puts us in the reality of what is implied in the world that he is glorious and we are wicked. And I think often when the Bible is taught, we'll teach, up, we'll teach the truths of God's word and then we'll try and apply it to everybody. When the applications are countless because we're all different. Let me give you another example. Ephesians 5 talks about how a husband and wife should interact. The implications of that is that husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church. And wives should respond to their husbands as though they are being loved like Christ loves the church. The implications for every married couple are the same. But how that is applied in my marriage compared to someone else's marriage is very different. Are you with me? Are you with me? So when we read something like this, what we are seeing is that God's people see the implications of their sin in the glory of God. And in the the context of their reality, they apply it. Are you with me? They apply it. So that's what's happening here. So number one, we see the first three clauses under this issue of the law. See, verse 30, they make a promise. They make a promise. That they are going to separate themselves in terms of intermarriage with those who are not God's people, verse 30. And this is going back, revisiting to Exodus 34, verses where God had said it wasn't right for them to intermarry, intermingle with people from other nations. Now, folks, they had nothing to do with race. It had everything to do with religion. 
Don't intermingle with those, with those who worship other gods. Don't engage, don't intermarry, don't become one flesh with, because that will completely distort your view, your perspective, how you live, how you function. See, the reason why we know it has nothing to do with race is because in the book of Ruth, a Moabite girl, a Moabite girl ends up being grafted in, marrying in to God's people. And as you follow her line, the Lord Jesus comes from her. So we know it's got nothing to do with race. It's got everything to do with religion. See, they were the people of God. And they were to be set apart. They were to stand out. They were to proclaim his glory, but they'd failed. They'd failed because they'd looked at the other nations and desired to be like them, rather than living in a way that the other nations looked at them and thought there's something about them and their God. So the first clause, promise, we promise to separate, to stand alone. The second one, verses 31, was that they promised to observe the Sabbath. They won't work on a holy day. They won't buy on a holy day. We will trust God. Now, folks, in that context, if you did not work, you did not get paid. If you did not work, you did not eat. So in this context, for them to say, we are not going to live, work in light of the Sabbath or buy anything on the Sabbath, it's them saying, we're going to trust God. We're going to trust what he said in his word. We're going to trust the order of creation and the order and the command that God has given for us that we should work six days and pour it out for him with all that we've got. And then we rest knowing that he has got it on that seventh day, knowing that we can trust him. We can trust him. See, we have a God that neither slumbers nor sleeps. Amen. You know what that means? It means you can. Let me apply that. We have a God that doesn't slumber, who doesn't sleep, that means that you can. Amen. That's good news. You can, whatever it is, you can. And unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. The house of his people, the house of his people, even in the context of your family, God will build it. So don't build in vain, build trusting that he will. Number two, they kept the Sabbath laws. Number three, they promised, and this is an integration of two laws, verse 31, they promised that every seven years they would allow the ground to go fallow, not do anything with it, just leave it, just leave it as it is. You know what I mean? Before I had AstroTurf, you think that I was doing like, like 70 years fallowing before we had AstroTurf. AstroTurf the future, all right? You have a constant allowing it to happen. And I don't know what that means to allow the ground to follow every seven years with Astro. But these people recognized that God had put something in place, which was this rhythm, this rhythm of allowing the fields to follow, to trust God, to allow that. But also it was connected with caring for the poor. So they said, every seven years we will allow that to happen. And then every seven years we will cancel the debts of those who owe. Now, we know from the chapters previously that they didn't do that, did they? In fact, they were putting interest on that. So you've got the promise of separation. You've got the promise of observance. You've got the promise of allowing the ground to fallow, trusting God in the long term, and cancelling the debts of people. See, they issued three issues from the word. The implications of what they read for them as his people were being applied in these areas. See, folks, God's people, in the midst of the conviction of this sin, realized that, that they needed to remember that they had been set 
apart by God to be his people, to be holy. They needed to remember to trust God, the God who had done so much for them in their history and commanded them to rest in him. And they needed to care for the poor and they needed to live out the reality of their redemption and their freedom as they interacted with other people. See, a few things just for us to highlight. Number one, God said in Exodus 19 that they were his chosen people and the world would look at them and see the wonder of their God. 1 Peter 2, he says the same thing about us, the church. We are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, that we may show forth the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are to be set apart, holy people, to live differently. So others look in and go, there's something about the way they live that makes sense. And we can signpost them to the wonder of who Jesus is. The other issue is, the issue is this, do you trust God? Do you trust him? The reason why they worked on the Sabbath is because they didn't trust him. Do you trust that God says you can sleep? Do you trust that God says that you can put things down at five o'clock or whatever it is you finished and he has it? Do you trust that when Jesus says, not even the birds of the air worry about what they're gonna, what they're gonna eat, how much more is he gonna care for you? Do you trust him? Are you resting in him? And do we care for the poor? Do we care for the poor? Jesus said the poor will always be with us. Do we care for the poor? And do we receive the grace of God but fail to bestow that grace on other people? Number one, three promises all around the law. Number two, three promises all around the temple, the presence of God. Verses 32 to 33, they commit to giving in order for the temple to run. A commitment that they will give so the showbread could be renewed. Now the showbread in the temple was a table and had 12 loads of bread. One represented each of the tribes of Israel. And it, was con they were, it had to be changed every so very often because it needed to be fresh. And what that did was present and show to the people that God was present with his people. He was always present. And remember, if you know from Exodus, God provided bread, the manna for them to be sustained through the wilderness years see god's people were saying we are committed to give so that we can renew renew the um the, the show breath but also we're committed to give so that all the sacrifices that we should have been keeping are able to be kept most notably the sin offering that's what it says the sin offering so the sin offering and the offerings were given and they were given and if they were accepted, it meant that the wrath of God had been removed. The guilt of sin had been removed. So when the wrath of God is satisfied and the guilt removed, you have atonement, which means this. You are able to enjoy the presence of God in all its forms. That's what that is. So they committed themselves to, we will give, in order to be remembered of God's presence, but also that sacrifices could be made so the sins that we cast off, the wrath of God can deal with and we can be forgiven. You see that? Number th the next one, verse 34, they commit to taking responsibility for the elements of the temple life, not just leave it, leaving it up to the Levites. So they took a cash lots of when they would do certain things. 
They do think things and they would support and say, we are part of this. We are part of what it means to engage in the presence of God, to engage in who he is. And number three, verses 35 to 39, they promise tithes. Not their leftovers, not if they can afford it after paying the gas and electricity. No, their first fruits. The best of what they had to support the temple staff in order to maintain corporate worship. Three promises all around the temple in light of being convicted by God in terms of how they were living. And they wrap it up, verse 39, by saying, we will not neglect the household of God. See, folks, this covenant binds them to obey the law of God. Now, what's interesting, I don't know if you noticed this, is that the first three are not issues of idolatry. You see that? When you look at the commandments, love no other God before me, if we, if, we, if, we, if we love another God apart from him, we'll break all the others. That's basically how it works. If our eyes are captured by someone or something else other than him and we worship that person or circumstance or whatever, we'll break all the others. But what's interesting here, their covenant doesn't go there. Their covenant highlights detailed stuff. Detailed stuff. See, what it highlights is the primary outworkings of sin as a result of them neglecting their relationship with God. They go right down to the details. And it deals with, with the sin as they were committed because they neglected their relationship with God, which was bound up in the covenantal details of how they were to relate to God through the Levitical system, the sacrificial system that was happening in the law. So they failed to relate to God, and as a result, they didn't trust him. As a result, they didn't care for the poor. As a result, there was all these difficulties of intermarriage and separation, and they were not set apart. Folks, in short, they were sinning in certain ways because they were neglecting their relationship with God. They'd forgotten and refused to obey the means by which they enjoy the presence of God. And the fallout for them was evident. See, they took their eyes off God. They'd forgotten that they were his people. They were forgotten that they, they were set apart to shine for him. They took their eyes off God, the God who had done so much for them, and they relied on themselves, ignoring the joy of resting in him and failing to trust him, hence not keeping the Sabbath. They became selfish, self-reliant. They forgot the poor and the needy amongst them, and they had and they'd forgotten that they had been slaves and were now people set free. They neglected the means by which the presence, forgiveness, and joy of God was known, and as a result, they sinned. They ignored his presence in the temple. They failed to make sacrifice for sin. They became indifferent, selfish, and the temple was neglected. The very place where the presence of God was known. The reason why they started with the temple, the reason why they started with giving to the temple, the reason why they started with giving so they could support the temple staff, why their eyes were drawn there, was this is how God's people under the terms of the Mosaic Covenant were to relate to him and they had got sloppy in that area. You get sloppy in that area, you become sloppy 
in your relationship with God. That's what was going on here. See, a neglect of the house of God, the temple, had been and would be disastrous for God's people. So folks, just as the confession was God-centered from last week, the promise and pledges in this covenant are also God-centered. And they're also in line with the Mosaic covenant, which is the covenant that God gave through Moses that said, this is how my people are to interact with me through the temple, through the priesthood, through sacrifice, through once a year a day of atonement where a spotless lamb would be sacrificed for the sins of the people. And it would be entered into the Holy of Holies through the priest who, who had washed himself, that took the names of the tribes into the holiest of place with a sacrifice. And if that sacrifice was accepted, he was able to come out of the presence and live for a year with God's people with that sin forgiven. They'd forgotten all that. They'd totally forgotten all that. And as a result, they sinned. See, their promise was to move towards God in the relationship that he had made with them. See, this covenant is wrapped up in how they are to relate to God. How they are, they are to be in relationship with him. And if they were sloppy in these things, it would affect their relationship. It would affect their lives. But folks, as we read this for us here in 2023, as we read this, we read their prospective glance, which is our present and our future. We see a prospective glance that is our present in our future. See, they move towards the temple where the presence of God is manifested. But we, new covenant believers, move towards God's presence in and through Jesus, who is God's Son. Amen? Amen. Because what we know, as they have a prospective glance, it's point number four, as we have a prospective glance looking to the as they look forward to how can we engage and be in right relationship with our God what we know is that 400 years later the angels proclaim that the Messiah was going to come and in Jesus the Bible tells us that he is the fulfillment of God's word that he is the fulfillment John 1 verses 1 to 5 says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God he was in the beginning with God all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made in him was life and the life was the light of men the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it see they move towards the presence of God by obeying his word we move towards the wonder of God by looking to his word Jesus Christ who is the final word amen he is the final word 2 Corinthians tells us for all the promises of God find their yes in him that is why it is through him that we utter our men to God for his glory Folks, their pers the prospective glance for, for them was they looked back at their history. They recognized that they had forgotten the means by which they engaged with God and his glory. And as a result, they sinned. As a result, they'd forgotten the word of God. Folks, we engage with the presence of God by looking to him who is the final word, Jesus. Amen? The one who removed, removed the curse for us, Jesus. 
See, Jesus is the fulfillment of the word. Jesus is the better priest. Did you notice in chapter 10, it was given to the priests, the Levites, because they were the ones that God had instructed to do the sacrifices. They needed those people to do what they had been instructed to do in order for them to be right with God. They'd forgotten that. So they were going to pour everything in to, in, to, to make sure that they would do what was meant to be done so God's people could be right before a holy God. But Jesus is the better priest. Hebrews 10 tells us, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made his footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. See, folks, the interesting thing is, in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to find out that God's people have made this problem, but they're going to fall right back into it. Praise be to God. That what Christ has done for us as the far greater priest who takes our names into the presence of God, making sacrifice on our behalf, means that it has been done once for all. Amen. Jesus is the better priest. And it's a perspective glance that shows us that Jesus is the better and final sacrifice. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin and he was baptizing and when the Lord Jesus came at the beginning of his ministry, he said this, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. These people were given everything that they had to, to ensure that all was there. All the sacrifices were there. All the spotless lambs were there. In order for the sacrifices to be made so they could be right with God, we gave nothing. Jesus gave everything. God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we may become the righteousness of God. Amen? Jesus is the better and final sacrifice. And Jesus is the presence of God. The better temple. See, the Lord Jesus walked into the temple in Jerusalem. And at that point, again, God's people had forgotten the, the sanctity and the wonder and the glory of what that was. And it became a marketplace for a den of thieves and robbers, Jesus said. So he makes a whip and he gets rid of them all. He clears them out with a righteous anger that was right, folks, to clear them out. And the Jews said, said to them, well, give us a sign, give us something that shows that you are able and, you, and it's right for you to do this. And Jesus says to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. They said, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple. How are you going to raise it in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus is the presence of God. See, we look to him who is the word. We look to him who is the better priest. We look to him who is the better um, final sacrifice. And we look to him because in him is the fullness of God. And in him was the fullness of God pleased to dwell. So folks, in our confession, we turn to him. Amen. He is the word of God. 
The priest who was sat down at the right hand of God, who was made the one and final atonement for sin. He was the perfect spotless lamb of God, who was the propitiation for our sin, who has satisfied the wrath of God and has risen again as in triumph over sin, death, and hell. And he is alive forevermore. All the law, the sacrificial system, the presence in the temple was pointing to Jesus. In their covenant, there was a prospective glance that was looking to Jesus. How do we know and experience the light and presence of God? We look to Jesus. When we sin, where do we turn? We turn to Jesus. When we're in confession, who do we cast our sins off to? We cast them off to Jesus. In our repentance, who do we turn back to? We turn back to Jesus. Because Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me not a change in my behavior not a change in my attitude not a change in my finances no but a change in my direction looking to Jesus only him who is the truth the way and the life see for these people the neglect of the household of God the temple had been and would be disastrous for God's people. And folks, I want to say this to you this morning. A failure to look to Jesus would be disastrous for anybody. Because without him, the wickedness in our, of our fallen state is something that God cannot look upon. And it is something that God has to deal with it with his righteous wrath. Because he is a God who is just. But in his grace and mercy, he has sent his son to die in our place so that you can enjoy the delight and the joy and the presence of God. You don't have to do anything. We don't have to even promise anything. We just by faith need to look to him. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and the light of his grace. And finally, folks, my last point. We don't neglect the household of God. We don't do it. What I love about the Bible is when you read through, you read through it, it's all pointing to Jesus. And every aspect just seems to ramp up and 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 ramp up. It just gets a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. So these people are making a promise all around what happens in the temple. But the temple be- began as a tent, a, 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 a tabernacle, that's wrong, it should, say, it should say, that's confusing, that should say tabernacle, it should say um, tabernacle then temple, okay? So the tent was the tabernacle. That's why it was just a tent, just some poles. But it showed that's where God would meet his people, the presence of God's people. And as we moved on, we had, there was a permanent structure, there was a temple. In the days of Solomon, God's glory came and filled the temple and God's people in Jerusalem. That's where they engaged with him. It ramped up. And it went from a piece of cloth to a piece of stone to human flesh. The God, Christ Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh and the fullness of God in Jesus became his presence on earth his presence on earth and then the Lord Jesus before he went says I tell you the truth 
it is to your advantage that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the helper would not come. What is Jesus saying? Jesus was fully God, fully man. And he was there. And Jesus laid aside elements of his majesty. He didn't, he di he didn't um, stop being God in all its fullness, but he laid aside to live in the context of what it is to be one human person. In the weaknesses and the limitations that that was. So Jesus' presence could not be everywhere. However, when he goes, he sent his spirit and his spirit would fill every believer so his presence is everywhere. So then what happens is, 1 Peter, we the church, the living stones are built, built on each other, on the cornerstone in order to be the temple of God. Folks, we the church are the presence of God here and now. Amen? See, the way it's ramped up, did you see that? With all our failings, with all our brokenness, with all our sin, with all our clinging on to Jesus, for some reason, for some reason, we are the presence of God here on earth. It's not, the presence of God is not something out here, woo, we pray for it and it comes down because we play certain chords on the piano. The presence of God is in every believer. The presence of God is known as God's people at the hands and feet of Jesus in every context. It's known when people, people are, are living in the context of grace and mercy and confessing their sins and loving their neighbors as the Lord has told us to do. It ramps up from a tent, from a tabernacle to a man, to a people. And then when Jesus returns, the whole earth will be covered with the presence of, and the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more and I saw the holy city. New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he see him seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, to me, this is John, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his his, this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Folks, it will be disastrous for those on that day who have not turned to Jesus. But it will be glorious for those who have. I just have a vision of the Lord Jesus grabbing my face, wiping tears and saying, I know it's been hard, son. But it's over now. Come in, good and faithful servant, and rest in the presence of my glory. What a day. What a day. Folks, how beautiful is Jesus? In all our failing, in all our brokenness, he came and lived the lives that we cannot live and died the death that we we all deserve, he, he fills us with his spirit to serve him and others in the world. And when he comes again, 
He'll hold our face. He'll wipe our tear and say, it's all done. It's all done. Come and enjoy. Come and enjoy. With no separation. Folks, whatever the sins that you've committed this week, whatever last week may have brought up in you, whatever it may have stored up in you, there is nothing that you can do to put you right with, with God apart from look to Jesus. So look to the beauty of his face. Look to the only one who can put things right. Look to him who gave of himself in the midst of grace and mercy and love so that we could know and enjoy his presence. That perspective glance is our present and by God's grace. It's our future. And while we wait that future, we don't neglect the household of God. We don't neglect the means by which he's given us as we look around to remember him. We don't forget the means by which we remember his sacrifice for us. We don't forget the means by which as we open the wonder of his word, his spirit, as I prayed at the beginning, stares our affections, not for ourselves, not for other people, but for Jesus. So in our confession, let us look to him who has made a covenant with us to put us right with Jesus. And let's surrender. And let's love him. And let's enjoy him, one with another, as we eat and drink and sing about the beautiful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your goodness and grace. Father, we look at passages like that and at times we just don't know where to go and we thank you so much that it's all pointing to Jesus. Help us now as we eat and as we drink, as we remember what you've done for us, as we do confess our sins and we seek by your grace to eat and drink in a worthy manner. We ask that we would do it in a way that brings you glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If we can pass out the, the bread and the wine, that'd be great. And the guys will play in the background. Can I encourage you? What did the people do? They did it together, didn't they? They made a promise together. They stood together. They stood side by side. So can I encourage you, with those who are around you, when you get the bread, when you get the wine, or while you're waiting for it, why don't you just turn to the people around you or the person next to you, if you feel comfortable with that, why don't you pray? Just thank God for Jesus. If you need to confess sin, confess sin. And if somebody confesses sin with you, put your arm around them and say, let's look to Jesus together. Because only in him, only in him, do we know that comfort and joy. Let's do, let's eat and let's drink. The guys will play in the background and we'll enjoy that together.